You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to NSLT. This is a bonus replay. The reason we're rehearing it today is because the CHIPS Act and various iterations of that act are now winding their way through Congress. What is that act about? It's about restoring the production of semiconductors to the United States. The pandemic has taught us one very important thing. That is that the supply chain of chips lies elsewhere. Now they're mostly produced in Korea, China, and one other country in Asia. And I think it's obvious that we need to bring this production home. But doing so is far more involved than may be apparent. So what it takes has been explained to us by Tom Quillen of Intel. And I would encourage you to listen to this and think about where we are in supply chain, because as you know, the news of today informs the national security laws of tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Everything requires semiconductors for processing. So what aspects of our lives now require chips and what minerals are needed for semiconductors? Does the United States control any of the supply chain of chips? And if not, how can we fix that? For answers, we're going to turn to America's largest semiconductor company, Intel. Google, Apple, and Amazon and other big tech companies get 90% of their chips from Taiwan's TSMC. As we look out at what is happening in Ukraine, we have to wonder what would become of semiconductor production if China decided to take Taiwan. Shouldn't we be bringing semiconductor manufacture home? Our guest today is Tom Quillen, Intel's lead for supply chain security policy. Tom's not a lawyer, thankfully, but a businessman who graduated from the Wharton School and who leads Intel's planning effort for security capabilities. Tom, thanks for coming in. I'm glad you could do it. Thank you very much, Elisa, for having me. It's great to be with you. All right, we're going to turn to you to educate us. Tell us what our needs are for semiconductors right now and how that is going to change in the future. It's uh, it's a really exciting moment. You know, think about it. Our entire world has undergone this process of digitization. Semiconductors are everywhere, from you know, the hundred plus in a car to those in your phone, your computer, even your doorbell. You know, we depend on those chips for intelligence and convenience in our appliances, our phones, our video conferencing tools. Chips have just become essential to modern life. What I expect is that for the future, you know, innovation in, in fields from communications infrastructure to artificial intelligence, th- those innovations are going to continue to drive and grow demand. And the estimates for demand range from somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 to 10% annual growth rates for the foreseeable future. But the problem is, as we've seen recently, that the world is just so short on capacity And the capacity is so anchored in one location that just any disruption can trigger a shortage or make a shortage even worse. Factory fire, freezing weather in Texas, regional conflict, global pandemic. Not having capacity in the U.S. puts the U.S. at huge risk. The White House called this out in the 2021 report on the U.S. semiconductor supply chain in response to President Biden's executive order on supply chains, the 14017 executive order. 
And, and they wrote, with no leading node semiconductor manufacturers in the United States or other members of the national technology and industrial base, the DOD is currently unable to ensure its access to secure supply chains. It's been called out by the Department of Defense and multiple other agencies and reports, including the National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence as well. You know, I think the bottom line is that Moore's Law, you know, that idea that computing gets cheaper, that computing gets more powerful and computing gets more efficient all at the same time, that's going to keep driving and fueling innovation. And that innovation is just going to keep growing demand. And the U.S. has to be better prepared. Yeah, I, I guess my concern is that we're a nation of short-term thinkers, right? You know, we're looking at that next tweet, quarterly filings. You know, we expect same-day delivery. We've programmed ourselves at this point to expect quick results. So let me ask you a few other questions, and then I'd like to talk to you about whether that sort of thinking is, is going to have any place here. Tell us a little bit about what is needed for semiconductors, what minerals and other resources are required and most importantly, what is necessary after you get those things to manufacture them? Yeah, that's a great question. The thing is that there has been a lot of talk recently about some of the need for specialized materials. But in the semiconductor industry, most of the big chip makers have access to really talented, uh, proficient supply chain risk management teams and practices. And and so what winds up happening is that for chip making itself, there's less risk in the specialized raw materials and more risk and, and more importance in planning and delivering the critical technology for manufacturing process technology and those tools that make the manufacturing process happen. And we're really talking about operating these semiconductor fabs at a, an enormous scale. Just to give you some sense of the scale I'm talking about, a fab is the shorthand for a chip fabrication plant. And a fab is a 70 foot tall structure with over a thousand of these, what we call tools. A tool is a machine in and of itself that you, some of which are so big, you can even walk inside them. It takes over $10 billion, three years, and thousands of construction workers to build a fab. We're talking about something that's gonna occupy about 300 or 400 football fields worth of space. You know, when you're at that scale, you're not just thinking about the access to the raw materials, but, but really long-term stability, including stable access to power, to transportation systems and networks, uh, seismic stability, geopolitical stability. You're also thinking like a steward who wants to be there to, to build a community, an ecosystem that's going to sustain this massive operation for, you know, let's say generations of future makers and influencers and gamers and, and TikTokers and creators to come. So that's really building for the long term. Yeah. And yet we have members of Congress who have to run every two years on issues that are only two years long. And they have to raise so much money right now just to be successful. I feel like our system is working against our long-term needs. So let's talk specifically about Intel, though. Um, how has this business changed in the last, say, 20 years? Right. It's been fascinating for me to, to have been at Intel 
and around Intel for the past 20 years myself. It's been a great privilege. And at Intel, the company assembled motherboards right down the hallway from my desk in Hillsboro, Oregon. You know, the cloud did not exist 20 years ago. Uh, the web was so new that the world experienced the dot-com bubble as people started really experimenting with new business models. But through the course of that time, Intel's business model has been relatively stable. We've been really focused on making great processors for computing products in a model that, that in the industry is called the IDM model. IDM stands for Integrated Device Manufacturer. That means that we design and build our own designs. But last year, our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, took a new direction that he is describing as IDM 2.0. And the idea here is that Intel is going to continue to design and manufacture its own designs for compute devices, but the company is also going to manufacture designs from other companies. That's typically a model in the industry called Foundry. IDM 2.0 is really the combination of those abilities to manufacture internal designs as well as others' designs. We think that's a really important development. It's a, an important way to help accelerate the innovation ecosystem, to sort of create a virtuous cycle, a, a self-sustaining flywheel effect, especially in the U.S., because that model is going to mean that new businesses, young students, graduate students at universities are going to have exciting ways to get their innovations, their research into prototypes, into products, and to have those products integrated into systems that, that we can all use. I love the idea of scientists putting their heads together and just coming up with a cool thing. But you did graduate from business school. And the way our capitalist system operates, and it's provided for tremendous wealth for society, but publicly held companies have to show uh, ROI or return on investment and shareholder value. And this has often meant offshoring manufacturing to places where labor and manufacturing costs are cheap. How do we bring this particular business home to the United States in the face of our, you know, mostly successful capitalist system, but one that may or may not really be working for us long term right now, as we look around and we see these, you know, Rust Belt towns and sort of the change in the country? And what can the White House and Congress do to sort of reverse this, not just in the interest of our long term prosperity, but also in the interest of our national security? Thanks, Elisa. That's a, that's a great question. When you think about it from a business perspective and you talk about concepts like ROI and shareholder value and you know the fact that companies like Intel and other companies are operating in a global competition for capital, I think it's important to look at a couple of factors. So one factor to look at is other countries have invested to attract chip making onto their shores. That reduces the investment costs that it requires to build in those, those countries, really at the expense of the U.S. or people who would like to build in the U.S. And so for chip making, the cost intensity isn't so much about labor costs like it is in, in some other industries. It's the intensive capital scale required to build these massively com complex fabs. So that's one factor that's at work. The second factor is that the science is harder and the technical risk is greater than ever. 20 years ago, a report from BCG says that the leading edge manufacturing capability cost about $100 million to develop. Today, getting to the leading edge capability costs $5 billion. That's about 50 times the cost. 
that gives you a sense of how difficult the scale is. In fact, 20 years ago, there were more than two dozen companies who were operating at that leading edge. Today, there are only three companies in the world operating at that leading edge. So that's a really important factor as well. The third thing is the scale, the size of these fabs has to be massive. So for that level of capital investment, you're really talking about a fab, a manufacturing facility that has to be able to supply a global customer base. I think we really passed the point where the private sector can compete and innovate and win without some kind of partnership with government. In the U.S., Congress introduced the Chips for America Act. This is why legislation like this is so critical and so important. The Biden administration has been doing an excellent job promoting this legislation. Secretary Raimondo, the, the Secretary of Commerce, has been a huge advocate for this legislation. And I really have to acknowledge that it's a bipartisan effort. Congresswoman Mitsui, Congressman McCall from each side of the aisle in the House, Senator Schumer and Senator Cornyn from each side of the aisle in the Senate have been working in a bipartisan way to advance the legislation and to, to, to really make sure that the U.S. can be a competitive place to expand chip making in the future. Yeah, I hope they're able to message out to their constituents about the importance of this. Unfortunately, I feel like we've been reduced to just sound bites, and this subject is so important and so massive, it doesn't really lend itself to that kind of reduction. But, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of jobs in America, and um, fortunately, we're at a good point. The recent statistics in from the Labor Department do signal uh, that at least unemployment claims, which, you know, maybe a sort of a false negative, have dipped. So that's a good thing to know. And, you know, a stable economy is always in the interest of national security. It's always in the interest of our status globally and diplomatically. But there's been a lot of talk about keeping jobs in America. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting when we talked was that Intel has 120,000 employees across the globe, and 50,000 of those are here in the United States. How do we protect that workforce and expand it domestically? And what's going to be required of a semiconductor workforce that, say, might be different from other workforces? And by this, I mean, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time lately in places I'm not from, which is in the Midwest. And it, it breaks my heart to see some of these former manufacturing towns now experiencing opioid pops. They're languishing. Uh, and my own family comes from a part of the Carolinas that was once the world's leading producer of fabric across the globe and is no longer. So what are your thoughts about that and how the workforce is going to be different? Yeah, it's it's an important issue. And, you know, what's interesting is that every analyst and uh, report that, that we're seeing today about the, the future of the semiconductor workforce is predicting a shortage of workers. In some ways, you might say, well, that's that's a good thing and that as all of these leading chip makers are planning to expand in the U.S., that's going to, to represent good paying jobs, technical jobs, opportunities for graduates in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math fields. Those areas are going to be in increasingly high demand. That's, it, those are all great, great indicators looking ahead for, for opportunities. The other side of that, it's a significant problem as well. It's, it's a real challenge to go invest in a, in a major 
facility of the scale that I was just describing a few minutes ago without high confidence that a workforce is going to be able to, to fill, to, to, to run the fab and to operate that factory the way it needs to be done. You know, just as we have too few fabs to make chips today, we have too few workers to run the fabs and to design new chips and advance the state of the art. We at Intel have taken on some measures and hope others will join us in, in these kinds of things to encourage investment and, and traction of, of workers to these technical jobs. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. In March, Intel and the National Science Foundation, NSF, announced a $100 million grant program to support higher education, uh, both two and four-year institutions to take on specific technology development programs. Now, we've got to get beyond the top-tier schools, too. And so Intel's been working not only with those top-tier research institutions, but also with historically Black colleges and universities, tribal colleges and universities, and other institutions that, that serve minorities. We also need to be establishing retraining programs to help recruit workers from other sectors. And so that might look like establishing or piloting registered apprenticeship programs for, for the industry in, in ways that really focus on entry-level positions and technicians, entry-level engineers, and so on. Those kinds of programs are, are really critical to, to take workers who are in the workforce and, and help them come over to the semiconductor industry. One other thing is I'm a huge advocate of education and public education or public schools and our efforts to attract uh, young people into technical fields too. And so I really think we need to stop not just at the universities and two-year and four-year institutions, but really go into high schools and even middle schools to be able to attract people into the semiconductor industry. It's not easy to get a middle school student excited about a semiconductor, but we know that that's where we have to get their interest. Uh, we've got to get this generation really excited about chip making. Yeah, there's an 11-year-old in this house who likes anything technical. I think you could probably get him pretty excited. And I think the biggest disappointment he has is that the JavaScript game writing class that he has right now doesn't have a next level. So I, I think there are, I, I spend a lot of time with the middle school girls and boys right now, and there's a lot of brain power. And it would be awesome if there was a way to make that happen. And they certainly do in other countries easily. So the, these are incredibly important issues. And I just, I, I'm worried because I, what I see here is this huge long-term, as you've described, I think capital investment that's really going to require some massive courage on the part of our legislators. I will say we've been here before, you know, President Eisenhower gave his famous speech about the need for public-private partnerships. And following that, we really saw America shoot ahead in terms of the technology. So I would like to see something like that occur now. And certainly that's going to be the only way we can stay competitive, as you indicate. Let's look to the future. And we've talked a little bit about quantum computing, you know, the speed of processing. What is going to be required as we look forward? Because I, I don't want to look to the next quarter, the next year, or when my middle schooler <laughs> goes off to college, but what's going to be required of semiconductors in terms of speed and capacity? And how do you work with a Congress not, that's not populated by all technical people 
to bring the supply chain home and help them understand the long-term needs that are going to have to be addressed when they have to do things like come up with an NDAA and how does that law consider a rapidly changing world in which America's semiconductor companies will have to outpace the competition, uh, much of what is going to get an unending supply of funds from like the Chinese government that doesn't have all the bells and whistles and democratic stops along the way that we do? Lisa, I think one of one reason that I'm somewhat optimistic in this in this moment where it's admittedly dangerous or risky to be optimistic, when cause for hope that I think we have is, is that there is such deep awareness and understanding of the, the nature of the competition that the U.S. is facing today. The fact that the risk of losing access to adequate semiconductor supply, the need to, for U.S. to stay at the leading edge of innovation for semiconductors, the awareness of that problem is so widely held. The, today, it's, it's pretty widely known, for example, that the U.S. 20 years ago made 37% of the global supply of semiconductors, and today that number is under 12%. There's awareness of that fact that I mentioned earlier, that, that two dozen plus companies were developing processors or semiconductors at the leading edge 20 years ago, and today there are only three That level of understanding and fluency about some of the issues among our lawmakers does give us reason to be somewhat optimistic. Now, you you mentioned that we're recording this and there will be a gap. This recording will live for some time online and we may be uh, listening to this a year from now and uh, wondering, you know, we, we may be either celebrating the success of Congress's support for the Chips for America Act, or we may be advocating that Congress come up with a Chips for America 2.0. In either scenario, I think that it's important for lawmakers to, to really understand that the, the consequences of a failure are really significant, that the risk is really significant. You know, for better or worse, we've seen in our experience with this global pandemic how difficult and how broad the, the problems can be when we face a semiconductor shortage. What's going to be required in the future of semiconductors is just increasing capability and power efficiency in a way that's really just best described by this idea that I referred to earlier as Moore's Law. And this was an observation that one of the Intel co-founders made in the 60s about the nature of and pace of semiconductor development. You know, some, some question whether Moore's Law can continue whether the pace and rate of innovation that Gordon Moore specifically identified at, at the time he made his observation, whether that could continue at the same rate and pace. What I would say is that regardless of whether the specific numbers that he forecast are correct, the spirit of Moore's law is alive and well, that we continue to see a lot of uh, progress on the energy efficiency and performance of processors in the future. You know, whether those processors get put to applications like quantum computing or accelerating cryptography or powering our communications infrastructure or helping autonomous vehicles navigate our roads more safely. All of those kinds of applications are going to be accelerated and powered by advanced semiconductors at lower cost than they are today because of that evolution. 
And uh, it's going to be critical for us to invest now to stay on that evolutionary path. You know, before we can, let's assume Congress gets together on this like they did on daylight savings time. Everybody agrees it's in our best interest to do this. I, I think before we can, assuming arguendo, we can we can bring these FAPs home. This could be the greatest opportunity that we've had in a long time to show our girth as a nation and our excellence and bring home manufacturing of something that's critically important. You know, we we haven't really talked that much about the fact that minerals are involved in this. And before I let you go, I know we're experiencing supply chain issues with respect to oil and gas. But if we have issues with respect to minerals, which is also a heavy interest of Russia, can that present a problem? Tell us what would be necessary for that, for the development of these semiconductors, manufacture, I should say, of these semiconductors. There, there's no question that certain, you know, a geopolitical conflict, you know, for example, the current one in Ukraine today, will cause challenges and, and stresses on supply chains for specific minerals or gases or material, raw materials. But most chip makers are going to have uh, supply chain risk management operations and capabilities that are going to help them navigate through those immediate situations. One of the key principles of the conversation that you and I are having right now is really just that the scale of the chip making process itself in the, 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 the siting of these fabs is really the biggest risk for, for the industry. Uh, where the fabs are is what matters. One of my colleagues in, at another company said a few months ago, you know, the First day of supply chain school, they teach you not to source everything from one place, but that's just what we've done with chips. My CEO, Pat Gelsinger, has has sometimes said, God decided where the oil fields are, Intel and Congress and, and the United States has this moment to decide where the chip fabs will be. I think that's really a powerful way to express the nature of the generational opportunity that we have to set a direction for the next few decades of innovation. Where do we want that innovation to be based? Do we want it to be concentrated in the US or do we wanna allow economics and other countries to continue the path that has attracted innovation overseas and investment overseas and, and fab capacity overseas? I think that's the nature of the choice that faces policymakers today. Let's also uh, say, I think, uh- the two pla- correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think two of the places that are really seem to have a hold on the chip fabs right now are Korea and Taiwan. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think also the EU has its own chipset going, and there must be a connection, presumably Ireland, um, which seems to have the tech hub there. We're showing right now that our we have European partners, and we also want to keep them in business. They're good partners in other ways. Before I let you go, can you talk a little bit about that aspect? What is overseas right now? What is being manufactured by our otherwise good partners? And how, if you know, the EU Chips Act might be different from the one that we have here? Right. Absolutely. You know, the the EU has seen an even bigger drop over the past few decades in its in its ability to make chips than the U.S. has seen recently. In March, Intel described its plans to start a planning phase for new fabs 
in Germany as well. And there again, you know, we just think it's uh, critically important to build the leadership ecosystem, that opportunity for a community, the country of Germany, the European Union, to have that, that kind of capability in a more balanced way. Uh, so just as the U.S. faces this challenge of relying on one particular location for, for so much of its need for semiconductors, Europe faces the same problem. And so it's really important for both regions to balance, to, to, to level the playing field, to achieve some kind of balance. And you asked about the, the European CHIPS Act. It, it is a little bit different than the U.S. CHIPS Act. But many of the core principles are really the same, that both really stress uh, ways to accelerate achieving that balance in manufacturing and supply and, and the importance of having a resilient supply chain for semiconductors and also the importance of R&D. Europe is particularly strong in research and development. Some of the leading tool makers in the world are based in Europe. Uh, some of the leading research institutions in semiconductor space are based in Europe. And so we see that as a really important opportunity to help Europe broaden its base to extend to manufacturing as well. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm really glad that you could join us this evening and educate our listeners. I figure this is just a little bit of what we would like to know. And I hope that at some point in the future, as this issue plays out and as Congress um, makes decisions about what it's going to do and what it's going to fund, that you'll come back and you'll visit us again and you will educate us further on where we are. Well, thank you, Elise. It's been just so wonderful to talk to you. And I hope that as we come back and we listen to this podcast again, that we're celebrating and seeing really concrete outcomes from Congress's successful passage of the Chips for America Act. I, I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to talking to you again in 2023 or 2024 and hearing about the lifetime investments, some great fab, someplace with a seismic stability and a lot of wonderful American people who will be happy to join a skilled workforce and work in what is likely a, an almost forever, if not forever industry. Thanks for coming and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. I just want to tell you that we never take your attention for granted and we'll be back next week with more serious content. Share this episode with a friend, discuss it over coffee, subscribe to NSLT and please send us feedback. You can do that through Twitter at ABA NATSEC or you can shoot us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And remember the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep you informed and give you context of these fast moving developments and changes in our world. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association. And this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.